0: Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. It would be nice to look out upon you and think that none of you have ever experienced pain and heartache or been hurt by people near to you. But we have all been hurt by the selfish words and actions of those who are near to us. Sometimes when we feel pain from those who are close to us, we can become disillusioned. Sometimes our reaction is one of anger, and even at times we feel like just we feel justified in seeking revenge. And evil seems to perpetuate more evil. And before long, we live in a world full of chaos. And when this occurs, and you've been hurt by those who are near to you, even those in the church it is easy to to conclude that either God does not understand us or he doesn't care. Either way, we begin to lose hope. We begin to wonder if there's even a path out of the mire in which we live. Into this chaos of life, Jesus declares that he has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' words are not a gimmick. He backed them up with his own death and resurrection. And I would argue that there is no other person in the universe who has the power to bring life out of chaos than Jesus Christ. The story of Jacob and his family occurs some 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. But I would argue that the words of Jesus' promise, I have come that they might have life, are in fulfillment to God's promises to Jacob. We live some 2,000 years after the coming of Christ, and chaos still surrounds us. And we need Jesus' words of hope, just as Jacob did in his time. We're going to look at the family of Jacob. And last week we saw that Jacob did not get off to a good start. He has two wives, loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. God looks at Leah, and he is merciful to her and provides four sons for her. And with the birth of her fourth son, Leah is brought to praise the Lord. Rather than continuing to crave love, the love of Jacob, her husband, she finds joy in the Lord. And at the end of last week, the end of that, we hear that praise of contentment that she has joy in Yahweh, you might think that Leah's sanctification is complete. You would be wrong. Her sanctification is only just begun. Sometimes when you are alone with God... You can offer up to him praise and adoration and declare to him that you are absolutely wanting to submit to him in all things. And I think we mean what we say often. I know I've given those prayers to God. But then we come down off the mountain of our spiritual high and we enter back into life, often just life in our family, and we have to interact with people. And those people are themselves dealing with their own sins. And rather than maintain the lofty mountain attitude that we had, we are plunged back into our own sinfulness. And it's often our own family relationships that wreak havoc in our hearts the most. So this is where we pick up the story. I'm not going to read all the chapter at once. I'm going to read and kind of follow it a little bit. Follow. So just follow along with me. Look at verse 1 for right now. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Now initially... It was Leah who was unloved. We're not explicitly told in the text, but it is probably a pretty good guess that Rachel was pretty indifferent to Leah's struggle. You understand what I'm saying? You know, she had Jacob's love. Ah, eh, doesn't really care that Leah was unloved. God cares about Leah. But Rachel probably does not. Leah has four sons. She is finally happy, praising the Lord. And you might think that your own sister would be happy for you. Right? I've got the love of our husband. Maybe you have kids. That's a good thing. Nope. Instead, we see Rachel envying Leah. Rachel wanted children. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting children. But the right thing for, Leah, or for Rachel to do at this point would be to take her frustration to God. She should have pleaded with God. She should have submitted to God. She could have been happy for Leah. Leah she could have been thankful that her husband loved her. Instead, she's filled with jealousy. And I want to tell you that throughout this passage, Scripture is given to you as a mirror. You're not just watching a show. You're supposed to be thinking, oh, how do I interact and react in similar ways? It's a way of mirroring into your own heart. So that's really what you should be doing. Are there not times in your lives when you are restless? Do you not struggle to be content with the many good things that God has given you? Instead of being content, do we not in our hearts struggle with jealousy? I would argue that Rachel's problem lives in all of us. Rachel thinks that her problem, and this is very important to be able to apply this to ourselves, Rachel thinks that the problem is out here. What I mean is it's external to herself. If she can somehow change the world around her, she will be happy. Life will be good. What she does not recognize is that the true problem is here, inside of her. And it's also in the lack of her relationship with God. Rachel thinks that just having children will fix the restlessness. She'll somehow be content. Now, I want to I stop here for a moment. I know this is a little side, but it's important. If you understand anything about woke culture, you've heard that term woke culture, I want to just say woke culture, and that's that's basically I should maybe define that, it's just it's basically the, the sense that what is wrong with our culture is is the the kind of the patriarchal system that has been placed upon. A, a desire to be in a, in a family, husband, wife, uh have good children. That 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 actual De- that ideal is the problem. That's how I, it's a lot of other things to it, but that's a big part of it. If you were to look at this chapter from a woke perspective, you would say that it's Rachel's thinking that having children is good. If she could just get rid of that ideal and just do what she wants, she would be happy. You see, what has happened is that... In, in woke culture, is that it is breaking down the the ideals that are placed before us in Scripture. I think that's a dead end. (laughs) If you can, the idea is if you could deconstruct the patriarchal system, then somehow you would just be happy again. It's just wrong. Deconstructing any ideal will not make you happy. Pursuing what you want at all costs will not make you happy. It just doesn't work that way. Being angry at others who hold the ideal will not make you happy. The answer is not found in turning away from an ideal. But let me follow this back, let me push back the other way. But neither... Will having the external ideal fix the problem of our own heart? You see, she's got the right ideal, a loving husband, children, but she doesn't realize that the heart is the true problem. You see, God, even though he thinks in his word throughout, children are a blessing, children are a good thing, it's actually in even some sense connected to the covenant promises I will give you offspring that's a good desire but do not think for a moment that just because that is a good ideal that God will not restrain from giving the good ideal he does and it hurts and it's painful and it's not easy and we should start being okay wow God actually does this. We don't always know why he does it, and it's okay. We know that it should drive us into the arms of God. Our pains, our struggles, our frustrations, we should take to God. Because we know that our God truly loves us. Rachel doesn't do that, does she? She goes to her husband and demands that he give her children, as if he's able to do that. I mean, um, Rachel craves significance through her children, but what she doesn't see is that her craving is truly a craving for, that only God can fulfill. That's what she needs. John 17.3 is not just nice sounding words. It is the truth. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. Rachel tries to control her world. She tries to control her husband to somehow try to fix the pain going on inside of her heart. And what happens is that her pain and her actions actually work in the opposite direction. Look at verse 2 Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? See, the one thing that she does have, a husband that loves her, remember he worked seven years and it was like a few hours he loved her so much, right, to get her. The the one thing that she has, her own selfishness, is now driving a wedge between her and her husband. Rachel's demand is sinful. But so is Jacob's response. We can't say that Rachel's sin caused Jacob's sin. That'd be going too far. But it certainly is a reaction to it. And what we have here brewing is family chaos. Jacob's response is technically correct. Who can argue with what he says? But I'm telling you, it is terribly wrong. He's speaking to his wife. She's the one he loves more than anyone else in the world. He does not share in her pain at all. Honey, that's God's doing. I can't do anything about that. And he gets angry at her. Jacob has probably witnessed the animosity between Leah and Rachel. But in typical male fashion... As long as that's between them, as long as it doesn't affect me, let them fight. But if that dispute actually spills over into her being angry at me, by golly, I have a right to be angry at her. And that's what he does. Jacob is certainly not living with Leah in an understanding way. You see, when it really gets down to it, Jacob loved Rachel because Rachel made him feel good. And now that she's not really making him feel good, he just gets angry at her. And we have to remember in this this struggle, God's not finished with Jacob either. Right? Could have put Jacob in the ideal marriage. But he doesn't. And he's in this struggle and God is working on Jacob as well. Husbands, just take it as a point. Ask yourself regularly, do I love my wife because she makes me feel good? Or can I love her even when she doesn't make me feel good? At this point, the relationship's like a ball of twine. Somehow it's gotten off, it's a its, its little real, and it's just intertangled. And you're thinking, how do I get these knots out? And the more you try to work on it, the worse it gets. Verse 3. Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she might give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived And bore Jacob a son. Now you have to understand that this solution was a culturally acceptable solution. That's why Abraham did it as well with Sarah and Hagar. It was culturally acceptable, but the culture doesn't get to determine what is good. Rachel has bought into the lie that if she can have a surrogate child, that's what's happening, that when Bilhah has children, it will be her children, Rachel's children. She thinks that by doing this, she will somehow fix the problem inside of her. She is deceiving herself. Yet how ironic is the mystery of God's providence. God doesn't allow Rachel to conceive, but Bilhah has no problem at all. And then when Bilhah has children, she has two of them, Rachel interprets the providence wrong. Verse 6 through 8. Rachel said, God has judged me. In other words, he has judged for me. He has heard my voice. He has given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. She names her second son, Naphtali, which means struggles of God. I think in the text it says mighty struggles. But it's basically she is thinking that God has joined with her side and against her sister, and now she's ascended back on top. And she feels good. You skip church on Sunday. You go to Walmart. Why you would go to Walmart, I have no idea. But you go to Walmart. Just follow the illustration. (laughs) You go to Walmart. You're walking down the aisle. And the very thing that you have been wanting for months is there. And not only is it there, but it's 50% off. And you conclude, God must have wanted me to skip church today. It's easy to read providence wrongly. You see, Rachel thinks that the enemy is her sister, and she doesn't realize the enemy is her own heart. She thinks she's prevailed. Verse 9, we're taken back to Leah. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave to her to Jacob as his wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. One sin leads to another sin. Chaos perpetuates more chaos. Leah sees Rachel's behavior hey, that worked for her, maybe I should do the same thing as well. What happened to her praising the Lord for the four children that she has? No, she has been drugged down, not really by her situation, she's been drugged down by the remaining sin of her own heart. She believes that Rachel is now prevailing over her, and guess what feelings, I guess, are coming back into her? Jacob doesn't love me. Jacob loves Rachel. Right? Feelings that I think had somewhat been dealt with now flood back in upon her. You ever feel that way? You think you've kind of conquered some sin? You think you've kind of dealt with it and then something happens and you're just like, just like, it. you don't even have to think about it. It's just like it rises right back up inside of you. Leah has just as much capacity in her own heart for jealousy as her sister. Things were fine while she was bearing children, but now the tide has turned. Rachel is is bearing children and she is not. do not underestimate the power of comparison to invoke within you jealousy. You come to church, you think your family's doing okay that week, but you come to church and you look at the other families around you and you go, they look like they got it together a lot better than I do. You start feeling insecure. My kids are really not as well behaved as those kids. And you start feeling jealous and insecure may even lead to after church being more harsh with your kids just trying to get them make you look a little bit better (laughs) Leah now through Zilpah is bearing children and she names them Gad and Asher Asher is a really cool name by the way Um, just means happy I like that it's really good but Leah gets it all wrong too. She thinks now that she's got some surrogate children that God's now flipped over back onto her side and she's back in the ascendancy. Again, chaos begets chaos. Can you see the dilemma? This is God's dilemma. And I don't know what point in my life right this kind of dawned on me, but I thought, man, God is in an impossible situation. He promises to bless he gives something good to one of his children, and as soon as he gives something good to one of his children, another of his children starts getting jealous over that children, and then he gives something good over here, and there's just, it's like, I can't win for losing. The problem is in here. This is the problem. Verse 14. You bring the children into it. Up to this point, it's been just a sister struggle. Now the kids come into it. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now you have to understand, kids can see what's happening when the chaos occurs. They see the problems happening. They don't always come up with the best solutions. They want to fix the problem, but they don't really know how to fix the problem. And this is what Reuben does. He's heard stories about mandrakes, increasing sexual desire and fertility. He goes out looking for this plant, and in God's providence, it's pretty strange that he finds it because it's not even native to that area, but somehow there's this plant. He takes it to his mom. Rachel learns that Leah has this, and she wants them for herself. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Leah has no intention of being kind or generous to Rachel. She's got her own ambitions. Verse 15, Leah said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. At this point, Leah and Rachel hate each other. Relationships have devolved and I just do not like that person. This happens in the church, you know. Been a pastor long enough to know that this happens. We hurt each other back and forth, back and forth until you just don't want to be with that person. Remember, these kids, when they were kids, they played with each other. Now they hate each other. Do you see what sin does in the relationship? Rachel is now so much consumed with her jealousy that she, Jacob is nothing to her except someone to manipulate. Rachel has prevented Jacob from having marital relations with Leah, but now, because she wants these mandrakes, she says, oh, you can have my husband again. You see how crass that is? Now, I don't believe that these mandrakes have the ability to increase fertility. But even if they did, who's the one who's in control of this? God is the one who opens the womb. Verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and listened to Leah. Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages. They've resorted to just calling it wages now. I'd much rather be Asher than Issachar. Because of my servant to my husband, so he, he, she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment, for now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. I'm not going to talk about Dinah. They're just introducing her because she's going to be a major player in a couple chapters. Whether he does so out of love for Leah or not, Jacob goes in and sleeps with Leah. Could be that he just wanted to try to avoid the situation. He's He's not someone who's strong and who's leading at this point. At this point in the story, would you want anything to do with Jacob's family? Is this the kind of place you want to start your people? God is a holy God. This is a mess. But then we come to verse 22. We've got to bring some hope out of this chaos, right? Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my approach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Now this statement, God remembered Rachel, is important. Because it's not coming out of the mouth of either of the the characters in the story. This statement has been put into the story by the narrator. This is a statement that gives us God's perspective. And we're finally going, finally, get us out of the squalor of people just fighting each other. Somehow do we get above the clouds and see some hope in this situation? And it comes by the statement, God remembered Rachel. This is a theological statement. It's not saying that God had forgotten Rachel, like we forgot our keys where we placed them. God is acting towards Rachel in accordance with his covenant promises. In Genesis 8, we read God remembered Noah when he was turning the flood and having the water recede. So that statement, God remembered Noah. In chapter 19, God remembered Abraham as as God is saving Lot from his troubles in Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on in the book of Exodus, God will remember his people when he leads them up out of Egypt. So the words God remembered are not just random. They're there for us to go, oh, finally God is acting in this chaos. God is remembering Rachel with his covenant love. He is treating her as a child of the covenant. You think she deserves to be treated this way? God also listened to Rachel. Her desires are not perfectly pure. She's using mandrakes. She's manipulating people. But somehow in the midst of all this, she does lift up a cry to God and God hears her prayer. This is Joseph. If you know anything about the story of Genesis, Joseph's a big deal. He saves his people later on. It is in a family full of chaos that God continues to work according to his covenant love. And I want to tell you here today, I think many of you do live in families of chaos. doesn't look like it maybe when you're sitting here on Sunday morning. But I talked to enough of you, I know that things are not always hunky-dory. How do we we apply this to our lives? Well, first, we can use Genesis 30 as an example of what not to do. Someone in the story should just step in and say, I'm going to act according to my faith in God and do what is right. Ryan did a good job of helping us understand that we need to extend love and compassion and understanding in even hard situations. We should tell ourselves when we're unhappy that it's not truly from what's happening around us that makes us unhappy. It's what's happening here that makes us unhappy. Genesis 30 is that mirror pointing into our hearts and we have to, we have, it's like God graciously saying, here, let me show you this story so that you can kind of st- see a more glimpse in your own heart. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can repent of our evil attitudes, because we all have them. I have an easy, man, it's an easy thing to just be defensive all the time. Criticize me, and I will be defensive. It's ugly. How important is the cross of Christ? We're going to come to communion in just a little bit. Only in the shed blood of Christ can we find full and complete atonement for our sins. And by the way, if, if the one who sinned against us is another believer, full and complete atonement for their sins. Right? We all want the forgiveness when it's us. But we should also want it for those in the body. At the same time, you want to know, I love the statement, I have been crucified with Christ. You know why I tell myself that? It's scriptural. Paul says it. But I tell myself that because every day I live with an old sinful nature that doesn't feel crucified. And the only one who can actually deal with the selfishness within is Jesus Christ. He didn't die on the cross just so you wouldn't go to the cross. He actually takes you up on the cross with him, and he crucifies you as he is being crucified. The only hope. I could see someone saying, oh, I don't want to be in in God's covenant because Rachel's evil. Who would want to be in God's covenant? Well, the only place you're going to have hope to get out of the evil is in Christ. He's the only one who can crucify your old nature. So we can look at the the text as as what not to do and how to go to Christ and have him help us in all this and forgiveness, but here's just another thing I want you to hear, and this is maybe the most important part of this. If you trust in Christ, he's probably not going to give you a quick fix to the chaos of your family. But it's okay. God is still good. And he is able to work in the midst of chaos. Submit your heart to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. He is one who can give you life. Abundant life. Even in the midst of the chaos of which you live. In fact, if that wasn't the case, why did he take his very first family? This is where he builds his kingdom, and, and Jacob is turned into Israel, and all of his kids become the foundation of Israel. He starts with this mess. If I were going to start a family, I would pick the best people I could get, you know, put them in incubation, and see how you know, good we could make it. He says, Give me the worst you got. And I will bring a gem out of it. That's our God. That's our God. One commentator, Walkie, I think he's quoting another guy, but I'm, I got it out of his commentary, says this. Embedded in this agonizing story of people's emptiness and self-inflicted pain is God's gracious gift of hope. These people have half-lives blocked by sorrow, hostility, and competition. To those longing for love or stagnated, stagnated by a sterile world, the faith offers not blame or jargon, but one who has come that we might have a full life. It's okay to be where you are today. God can work in you and he can change you and he can make uh, something beautiful out of chaos. Amen.